0: Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do list one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa, as well as Nigel and Elise. All right, so let's just get right back to the countdown. Here we are, pretty much right smack in the middle of the list. These, these movies aren't, they aren't bad. I mean, I guess they're kind of good. Again, meh. So at number fifteen we have 1983's Octo Kitty, true story. I had a friend. Uh, we we went through the bachelor's program and the master's program in English together, and he got married between the two, and his wife gave him one of the early Bond box sets, and she. <laughs> this is true. She taped a piece of paper over the word pussy and replaced it with kitty. <laughs> so his version of it is actually Octokitty. And that is a true story. That's funny. 1983's Octopussy, the one where an incident at a circus threatens to destroy the delicate geopolitical ecosystem of the 1980s Cold War era landscape and make Afghanistan an even more unstable place. No, wait, that last part can't be right. But it is.
1: How do we feel about Octopussy? So I have this movie as number, 15, uh, number 16, so we're pretty much on par with it. This movie is much better than the fake Bond movie that came out the same year. Never Say Never Again, that movie sucks. We're not discussing that on this podcast, but I have feelings. <laughs> so I think, and I said this when I watched it, but now I don't remember why, that this is an Indiana Jones sequel. James Bond jumps from a horse to a plane, and this movie came out two years after Indiana Jones, which is back to what I was saying, what we were saying earlier with Moonraker coming out two years after
0: Star Wars. Yeah, so the, the big thing about that, right, is that they got George McDonald Fraser, who wrote the Flashman books, which are very much of the same ilk as the Indiana Jones movies, to take the initial pass at the script um which originally included a motorcycle race with a duel to the death sidecar race and 007 trapped in a cage with an angry gorilla so there's a reason you see that connection absolutely
1: yeah i do think at this point in the bond movies and in my notes that i'm like over the soviet plot lines so it kind of you know just from my being tired of it, it is not higher on the list the movie is pretty wild but in a way where it doesn't make it the worst because I can look at it from that, okay, this is supposed to be a little ridiculous lens. But yeah, I'm just over the Soviet bad guy plot lines at this point.
0: I
2: didn't particularly care for this one. I think it's maybe around 16. I, yeah, like Elise was saying, I, I, like the whole, I mean, even from the beginning, the whole Soviet plot line, and like I understand. Cold War propaganda. Like when I explain, when we're talking about like propaganda, I'm like, oh, you know, James Bond is an example of Cold War era propaganda, and people are really surprised. Well, some people are. They're really surprised with like what. And I'm like, is it not suspicious to you that like all of the early Bond villains are Russian or like, you know, in the case of Drax in the Moonraker book, like an ex-Nazi. You know, so I'm a it's bit true. bored by it. Yeah. I'm a bit bored by it, and this one for me as well just feels like a bunch of action set pieces that are really thinly um put together it you know in like the most convoluted or not no hackneyed isn't the word haphazard that's the word I'm looking for the most like convoluted haphazard way possible they're like, well how do we get to the next you know action set piece which That's a thing you see an awful lot with more modern action films where spectacle has overtaken um, script. But it's weird to see in this one because, like, yeah, Bond has always had really big set pieces, but early Bond had a way of getting to them where it at least felt, for the most part, that it makes sense within the world of the text or within the world of the film. And this one kind of doesn't. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: It's
0: really interesting. When <laughs> you, yeah, it's really interesting when you talk about the Soviet of it of a Sovietness of it all, because of course Ian Fleming was a, a, a spy himself, or at the very least spy adjacent, and you know was heavily invested in in Cold War spycraft rhetoric, politics, and his novels are too, and and something that that the producers at Eon constantly did was downplayed it. And so there are very few times in the Bond franchise where we have to stare directly at the Cold War. Um, You know, of course, here in America, we kind of see it as more like a, you know, a, a, a jingoistic us versus them situation. And so there's that, you know, UK intervention, which is very interesting. But one of the other things that I find fascinating about Octopussy in particular is, you know, this is the beginning of a period of, of you know, of, of, of Thatcher's Britain, along with Reagan's America, and it's the detente with, with, with Thatcher and Reagan and Gorbachev. Sure. And so this is a film that is super uncomfortable to watch now, because like many of the others that will come later on this list, it just predicts some stuff. With some uncanny ability, like the whole Afghanistan thing is super uncomfortable this year to watch. And so, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an okay film, but it's like a piece of, of political, uh, a piece of popular cl- culture created by a real political reality. It is fascinating. But, mm. and now for something completely different, Tessa. Oh, can
2: I just? No, just on the politics of that, it's like doubly uncomfortable when you think about like Reagan's America and Thatcher's Britain, because as someone who lives in Ireland, where it's like this is a country which is not the one I live in, but it's having like a profound effect on the politics within the island of Ireland, especially like in the north and stuff. So it's really weird to view this as a piece of like propaganda from that time, especially when you're like, I want to sit down and enjoy a film.
0: I'm thinking,
2: yeah, I'm thinking of that bit from, um, the Eric Andre show, which I will put here in the chat, but it's like, everyone has this idea of Margaret Thatcher being like an effective leader and stuff. And she's really, she's just a horrible, horrible person. And I feel like there's not a lot of people that would disagree with that sentiment, but it's weird seeing propaganda, which promotes that kind of economic fiscal and foreign policy.
0: Are you familiar with the Pink Floyd song, The Fletcher Memorial Home? No. For incurable tyrants and kings. You should check it out. Now for it something completely qu- different, Wait. Tessa. <laughs> has
1: something
0: different. I really want to do my now for something completely different. I'm Go ahead, sorry. Elise.
1: And not I for something completely very the, much. Now for something as completely the same, to,
2: we're derailing the podcast. As, as
1: some, <laughs> As someone who listened to um, ABC Radio with my mom, like some I I appreciate your and now for something completely different. Um, I watched this movie like the same week that Biden had announced that we were withdrawing from Afghanistan, so it was kind of um funny to and I say I don't mean funny, haha. But like my friend was um there was a lot of discourse on the internet that week about like who is allowed to comment on afghanistan and who's not like in a way where it's like obviously um you can have an opinion on something if you want to <laughs> but um uh, my friend joked that i was watching this movie so that i was allowed to discuss afghanistan afterwards and i thought that was very funny
0: are are we ready can I do it
1: yes you can do
0: it and now for something completely different now for something completely different
3: so, actually, to return to what you said, no. Come
0: on! <laughs> all of this I, has actually, to be left actually, in. Actually,
3: to, to go way back to something you said at the beginning of this conversation, the, the really funny thing about this is that all the Cold War stuff is, like you said, it gets kind of tiring after a while, but it does make, I think it's License to Kill, where... Bond encounters like a group of villains that have no idea who he is and then like the when the Russians hear about it they're just like oh yeah that's James Bond. I laughed so hard because I was like yeah like they've been so entangled in the Soviet stuff for so long that of course the Soviets would completely know who Bond was but like nobody else does. Like everyone else is like who is this person but like the Soviets totally know who he is and I found that funny. The one redeeming thing about Octopussy that I absolutely love Is the actual Octopussy gang like Maude Adams playing Octopussy and her like all female like almost Amazonian group of assassins and thieves? I I love that and this is this is one of those moments and there'll be another one specifically later on in a different film we're gonna talk about where I'm just like I want a movie about this like I don't want Octopussy the Bond movie but I do want Octopussy the film about a all-female group of assassins and thieves that live on an island and, like, do political stuff. Like, that to me was the one great part about this film. And they, they kind of wasted it. We got a little bit of a joke when Q lands on the island and all these women are, like, oh, like, happy to see him. And that's really funny. But, like, I, I, I will say that that felt like a missed opportunity. Like, I really wanted to see more of that particular part of the movie and less of the Soviet back and forth.
1: Desmond Llewellyn actually said this was his favorite to act in because he had gotten the most to do in the movie. So that is fun that, that there's more cue. All
0: right, so next on our list. No, you have to say it. I, what do I have to say? I don't know, Sam. What do you have to say? All right, at number 14, we have 1963's From Russia With Love, the one where Bond is catfished, Wait, hold on. I mean, Honey Trapped.
3: I love I love that we were just talking about the Sovietness of these movies and then we go <laughs> to like the most Soviet of the movies. But to be fair, it was the second one.
2: I think this one is much more informed by how, like, playing the video game because I definitely saw this one after I played the video game as a young child. You know, like, I have more clear memories, I think, of Bits that happened in the video game that I do with the film, which I watched more recently because it just stuck in my head, you know, like a bit where you go in a, in a jetpack through a sewer and such. I think it's really, I can't get over how problematic it is in its depiction of Romani people.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Where it's like, like, this is another thing um, where I'm just like, this is kind of sinking it for me. Otherwise, the film is a bit boring um but it's like with bond you can have a boring film if the action is kind of good and and like this is the film with like the knives in the shoe right
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
2: like that's a fun interesting bit but like largely it's kind of boring and then it's weighed down by like problematic representation so this is like quite far down on my list actually i don't really have an awful lot to say other than i didn't like this one
1: Um, This movie is actually a lot higher on my list. It's number eight. I very much love Rosa Klebb and her poison knife shoe. She's one of my favorite henchmen of all of Bond. Um, I never was a big Austin Powers fan, but I do think this is one of the funnier, like she's one of the funnier things that they parodied for that. Um, I love the opening where you think Bond is dead, but then you realize it's like a Spectre training program. I don't really have that much else to say on it, but I, I did in my reading. I learned that the scene where Bond meets um, Tatiana Romanova is the scene that they test all potential Bond uh, actors with, because they say that that is that scene helps them know if the Bond, if the band, potential Bond actor is going to work out. That they learn everything that they have to learn from that scene. So. I just would love to see like a super cut of all of the Bond actors doing that scene.
3: All the demos and auditions. Yeah, that would be fun.
1: I think I haven't looked for it, so it could exist for all I know.
3: The only thing that I like clearly remember about this movie, besides the knife in the shoe, the the Rosa Club knife in the shoe, is the train sequences. I do think that those are some really cool action. I mean, this is before we were doing like those hallway fights, right? That we that that now we've seen. Like in Daredevil. Yeah. Like in Daredevil Daredevil
2: alone.
3: Yeah. And so (laughs) Daredevil out your mouth. The the scene I love Daredevil. Yeah. So the scene in the train kind of, to me, it seems almost innovative because it was before we had started doing fight scenes like that. And obviously the Mm -hmm. early Bond fight scenes are not really, you know, something to write home about. They're definitely informed by their time. But I just found that to be fascinating. It's always something I think of when I think of the film.
0: And this is one of the films that is closest to the novel. Again, they soften the direct Russia connection. In terms of um, the the politics of the Cold War, um, in terms of Fleming had originally written, the ending is different because in the novel it is a cliffhanger because she gets that knife in. Blofeld is credited with a question mark in the credits, and the last thing I'll say back to back to Nigel's point, not for the reason that was articulated, but that girl fight scene as well as the train combat sequence, as well as the honey trap love scene, were in danger of being censored. So, shocking. Racy. I think as well, just, it's interesting, because this is
2: the second Bond film they made, and like when you watch um, Dr. No, and then you watch From Russia With Love, like, Fairly close after you, you notice that, like, in the first two films, we're batting uh, two for O on um, women breaking into Bond's house with the intent to seduce him. Like, it happens in Dr. No as well. And it's a really weird thing when you consider, like, how we perceive Bond today, where he's. Okay, so, like, I'm. I really do not want to excuse any of Bond's behavior around women. I think he is a misogynist. Sorry, Tessa. But. I think he's much more timid in how he's portrayed in the, like, earlier films. We're not going to let Tessa respond.
0: Uh, <laughs> and now for something completely different. <laughs> well, thoughts. well, oh, well. Talk well, we'll talk about that in the next segment, where it most logically lies. So, I had a train of thought. Okay, so uh, Tessa and I kind of watched these in fits and starts. I think maybe from Russia with Love, we even watched in the before times. Like, it was a while ago. But... Moving from that to number 13, there are two movies that I had not seen prior to Tessa and I watch of this. The first one was Octopussy, and the second one was, at number 13, 1985's A View to a Kill, the one where the Bond villain causes our current processor shortage by, according to my notes, the exact same thing that Lex Luthor does in the 1978 Richard Donner Superman.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right.
3: <laughs> I'd like to point out that when we watched this, there was an actual processor card shortage in there Silicon Valley. Is. There still is, and like it was very weird watching this movie and being like, yeah, that's actually what happened. But let's start with you, Elise. Besides the
1: wonderful Duran Duran song, what do you think of of You to a Kill? I had this at number 14 on my list, so pretty close to you guys. Um, Roger Moore snowboarding with California girls playing in the background is a a wild mood. Max Zorin and Mayday are very chaotic villains, but I don't hate them, even though Max Zorin is not my favorite. Um, I think the failed stereotype experiment making him quote unquote psycho, a word I don't like to use, is an origin story, if I ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) I did watch this movie and think that maybe destroying Silicon Valley is not the worst idea that was ever created. (laughs) Tanya Roberts gets a lot of flack for her acting in this movie, but I will blame direction and script on that a little bit, too. I do think that it's cool that after this movie, Tanya Roberts realized that she should be doing comedy, and I feel like we've all benefited from that. Um, I really enjoyed her in that 70s show. There is a scene in this movie towards I don't remember if it was in the middle or towards the end, that like fire truck chase scene. That is like the blurriest cinematography in all of James Bond. I I can't think it was on purpose. Yeah, it just it It's just bordering really on looks Jason more- Bourne. Like, I also feel like I could have filmed it better, and I'm horrible at filming. It's so blurry. And I also, apologies to Tanya Roberts. She's not believable as a geologist. <laughs> uh, is,
0: is she better or worse than Christmas?
1: Um, I have comments on that later. Okay.
0: I, I just, really quick, two things. And this is the sum total of my comments on this film. The, the original plot was him pulling down Hallie's comment. Instead of doing the San Andreas fault thing. (laughs) And that's not, that is not, not awesome. I really wish they had done that. Um, Or try, I I don't know what to say about that.
1: Maybe the next Bond will do that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'd say they go to space, but they've already done that. The other other thing is that, oh God, there's another thing. Um, And it was really the one that I wanted to say.
2: Is it something completely different?
0: No, no, it's on topic. Um, oh. That's really... I realized
1: I got my something different references wrong earlier, uh, and that it's, that it's from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Bull- 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 Bull.
0: Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. I don't remember what the other thing was, and it's the best part.
3: Well, let's let Nigel talk about no. her feelings about this movie, and maybe you'll remember.
2: No, no. <laughs> no, I am... Go ahead. So... I yeah a lot of my a lot of my frustration with this film comes from the fact that it's not intentionally a commentary on Silicon Valley you know like Elise was saying um it wouldn't be the worst thing if they destroyed Silicon Valley <laughs> but it's not like ex like they. Ugh. one of my main problems with Bond as a series is that it like dances around really big geopolitical issues or like technological issues and things like that like i'm gonna keep bringing up spectre but like in the vaguest way possible before i can like get into spectre but the whole like automation of you know the military industrial complex and stuff where it's like it doesn't really engage with that and i feel like this one doesn't engage with you know like any kind of geological thing where it's like you know you could even have done bond does climate change in this one instead of like quantum of Solace. Uh, but also like, you know, the snowboarding scene is weird. Bond mooring an airship to the Golden Gate Bridge. (laughs) It's like, okay. Um, like, and then at the end where Bond gets like, what, oh, what's the medal that, um, Gogol tries to give him the order of Lenin. I just think that's really like hilarious, especially after our commentary on like the Sovietness of it, where it's just like, you know what? You can be like an honorary Russian now.
3: I mean, why not? At this point, he's been fighting them for so long. Colt Todd. I Yeah,
2: this is Bond enemies to lovers, but with the
3: Soviets. (laughs) (laughs) I love Grace Jones so much in this movie. I think that Christopher Walken is also a great Bond villain, but Grace Jones really steals the show. And I love that she... She just looks, I mean, Grace Jones is such a unique looking beautiful person, but I love that she's in this and she's so different from the usual type of Bond girls in the way that they look and she's so athletic and she's so like androgynous in some ways and she's gorgeous. She herself has said that she thinks that the Bond franchise is actually really conservative, which I find hilarious, but she... She just eats up every single scene that she's in in this movie and that one that pushed it up for me in its rankings. But yeah, there are definitely some moments where it's like, okay, like the film it, the film I think could have been about half an hour shorter and would have been probably better.
0: So I remembered the other thing. So it's the snowboarding scene, right? With the with the Beach Boys and how that's I to me that is a very obviously a take on the Beatles song back in the USSR. Which takes, mm. you know, the Beach Boys and inverts it. So, like, I thought that was really clever.
1: I liked it too. Yeah.
0: So now we are to the point in our list. Number 12 up. These are our good bonds. We've done the bad, we've done the meh. Here is the good stuff. Starting with OG 1962, Dr. No, the one where the villain. Uses a nuclear reactor pool to power a radio jammer, which feels like Overkill.
2: Yeah, that should be that should be his name, Dr. Overkill. <laughs> um I quite enjoy this, especially for like a first outing for Bond. Like I mentioned before, in terms of the theme, like it starts off really, really wacky and kind of doesn't let up. Like for me, one of the scariest villains. Is in Dr. No. And it's not Dr. No. It's the spider that's in Dr. No. Because that's kind of terrifying. But <laughs> but it's also... I think it's hilarious where, like, Dr. No, he's meant to be this menacing... Like, you know, he's hiding out and he's building his radio jammer. But it's like... He knocks out Bond with poison gas and then politely tucks him into bed. Where it's like... <laughs> it's like... I think out of all of the early Bond films, with the exception of one, which I'll bring up when we get to it, this one really is able to stick the landing between this is a spy film and this is a comedy film where it's like just a bunch of wacky hijinks that are happening. I think it's able to thread that so much better than a lot of Bond, which is really weird because all of the bad ones come after it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You sound I, like you don't agree with me, Sam no I do I just i need to really I need to interject really quickly because, as you know, all of the bond actors have been down to clown when it comes to stunts but this this movie has a special place and and Nigel, you've led me in so this is this is part mm. one of a three part podcast within a podcast called Bond Actors in Peril. Of course, Sean Connery, as many people, are terrified of spiders as he is right to be, and so they 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 like put this piece of glass between him and the spider and it wasn't good enough so they had to like put the stunt man in peril with an actual spider and and this has been an episode of bond actors in peril thank you please continue
1: so doctor no is pretty high on my list um it's number 6 i really like honey rider a lot i in, feel and coral i think coral's a fun um character i feel like it often gets glossed over that people people forget the scene where honey rider explains to james bond how she had killed her rapist and i feel like that was just an interesting thing to include but that comes back later to there's, like, a really rapey, like, Dr. No comment when they take Honey Rider away, and he's like, I'm sure the guards will abuse her, and that it feels really gross and doesn't, I don't know that that needed to be said. I do love any Bond movie that has Felix Leiter in it. Um, I am a huge Felix fan. I That will make me more invested in any Bond. I mean, I, as not Nigel said, this is, like, the first one. It just feels very classic to me, you know. It's also different because I don't think that they, I feel like from Russia with Love and Onward had a more Bond formula than this one kind of has, does its own thing. One thing I will say is there's definitely um, some Orientalism and racism because Dr. No is half Chinese and he's played by a Jewish Canadian man, which is a choice. But um, overall, I really like this movie. And even though there are definitely um, some problematic aspects to it.
3: And the some of the Jamaican scenes leave a little to be desired, especially oh, because sure. all of the black people that help him die in this movie, which is
1: yeah, its mm-hmm. yeah, own Coral dies thing. too, and the the unnamed ones.
3: Yeah, I agree though that first of all, Felix Leiter, I didn't, I had no idea that he was in the first Bond movie. Like, I thought he was like a later edition. I mean, Felix Leiter predates Q in this series, like, which right. I think is interesting. Yep. But Felix Leiter,
2: also- my beloved.
0: <laughs> but also,
3: I agree with you, Elise. I like the fact that there, I mean, as much as I like the tropes and as much as I find them comforting, it is really interesting to see, see a Bond film that sort of predates a lot of the formula that we see later.
1: Yeah.
0: So, real quick um, novel check in time Quirrell does not die and shows up in another novel we do get introduced to um wait hold on i'm trying to think i don't think felix Leiter is in doctor no the novel the reason i think that is live and let die is an earlier novel and that's the one where felix gets chomped so yeah anyway i
2: i want to i want to just put down at this stage a pin which i will pick up later right, i'll just hear. say the words I'll just say the words no time to die and I will uh leave it at that
0: mm. okay All mm. alrighty then number 11 the year I graduated from high school tomorrow never dies from 1997 the one where Richard Branson sells out to China so if you're still <laughs> hearing this podcast hooray we did it <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tomorrow, number die never dies is number thirteen on my list. Um, I really like the plot. The whole cable news aspect feels really resonant, especially since cable news has only gotten bigger since nineteen ninety seven. The plot to so one trope movie trope that I absolutely adore is someone controlling two sides to make them fight each other. I love it. X-Men first class, The Sum of All Fears, the Jack Ryan novel and movie, and the Star Wars prequel trilogy are things I genuinely love. And yes, the live action that.
2: GI Joe film.
1: Oh, I haven't seen that, but I believe you. That's just I love the idea of someone trying to trick people into war, only in a movie. I don't like that in real life. Jonathan Price is a really good Bond villain, I think. Um, I laughed hysterically. Of course, Bond had had sex with his wife previously. Michelle Yeoh is my queen, and I love her as Wei Lin. but I do think that they purposely didn't use her as much as they could have because she would have stolen this movie.
3: It's true. In fact, she was accused by Jackie Chan of stealing scenes from him when they started movies together, so... <laughs> it's true it's really hard to outshine Michelle
1: Yeoh yeah.
2: this one like feels like the start and end of something you know like this is the first one that was made after Albert Broccoli died you know it, it feels like a bit of a handing over like it's still with his wife and stuff but it feels I don't know like I just get the vibes from it even if it's not like explicitly done out in the narrative being like this is a tribute to um Cubby Broccoli but yeah, this this whole film uh like it's not the most like complex of plots and stuff but it's the one of the more globe-trotty plots. You know, where this is like they're going absolutely everywhere in this one. And like like you said Jonathan Price is a pretty good villain. I mean, I didn't see this film until after I saw Game of Thrones, so like in my head he's still the high sparrow. Actually no, I hadn't seen this film until after I saw The Two Popes as well. So Oh, my that's a good movie. Yeah, my engagement with Jonathan Price is Game of like The High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, The Pope, and then The Villain in Tomorrow Never Dies. <laughs> and it's like
1: Yeah, I think I knew him from this first.
2: Yeah, and then when you consider it's like how many of the Pierce Brosnan films have like die or kill in the title? It's just I, Actually, I think it's only two now, now that I think <laughs> it's about two. it. Two. Yeah. But it's weird that like they're there in the titles. It feels like there's more when you look at like how disparate all the other titles are. Where you have tomorrow never dies and die another day, which it you know die another day, which is not tomorrow.
3: Don't die today or tomorrow, but another day.
0: So just remember, tomorrow never knows, and tomorrow never dies. So it doesn't know anything, but it is also immortal, and that's got to be. The worst.
2: Like Baron Samity, it is immortal.
1: <laughs> That's my favorite Beatles song, so I'm very happy right now. I... Can you say that backwards? Happy... no. <laughs> <I'm> not even, <laughs> even going to try. I
3: am kind of ambivalent about Piers Brosnan as Bond, w- which we'll talk about later, but I will say the one thing that he does really well that none of the other Bonds quite seem to do is to... Uh, I mean... Let's be honest, a lot of Bond girls die in in James Bond films. And we've talked a little bit about how, like, for an example, they've ignored that in some cases, like the On Her Majesty's Secret Service to Diamonds Are Forever. Pierce Brosnan does a really good job that when a Bond girl dies, he makes this acting choice where he genuinely emotes sadness, even if, like, the relationship they had wasn't, like, a deep relationship. But even when it was, he does a good job of just sort of emoting that. And so when Terry Hatcher's character dies in this, there's this like really brief scene. Like they don't linger on it and they don't really come back to talk about it all that much. But like he, there's this really kind of touching moment where he like pulls her into his ar- her body, into his arms and just kind of sits there for a moment. And I, I appreciated that as an acting choice because I think that some of the other films gloss a little bit too quickly over the death of like bond girls and the fact that it's their proximity to him that kills them a lot of times. And so I I do appreciate that about Pierce Brosnan is that he makes this choice to kind of sit there for a moment.
0: This narrative that that Hollywood is a or filmmaking in general, big budget filmmaking, because of course Eon Productions is not Hollywood. But this idea that any of this is a meritocracy is absurd. And 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 this is one of those stories that of course makes your head spin. So before Price won the role, it was out to Anthony Hopkins, who chose to do the Zorro movie instead. What Zorro movie? The one that the guy who directed GoldenEye was doing. So they hired a new director, Spottiswood, whose big claim to fame was Air America, which was a Mel Gibson movie. That's fine. Now, The reason this movie seems a little bit weird from a writing perspective is that they got six different people to take a crack at it at the same time, including Tom Ropaluski, whose big credit was a sequel to Look Who's Talking. And I don't mean Look Who's Talking 2. I mean the third one. Also, (laughs) Leslie Dixon, who wrote (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire. And possibly the one that makes the most sense, Nicholas Meyer, who wrote The Wrath of Khan. And then some... (laughs) Jesus, come on, man. But... (laughs) So, like, what?
1: I am a Nicholas Meyer stan. Not as a person. I don't know anything about him. I just enjoy a lot of his movies. Um, And they said that he, like, had this idea... That was so horrible for Bond that they basically just like laughed him out of the writer's room. So I don't think any of his ideas actually got into the film.
0: (laughs) It's just, you know, it's, this is before the relationship with Purvis and Wade that will take us all the way through the series really came and boy, they just grasp at some straws in terms of writing after, you know, when my bomb's not involved, when Purvis and Wade are not involved, there's just chaos. so Tessa. I'm going to turn to you. How did you get involved in the James Bond of it all?
3: This is a very boring story. I'm just going to warn you right now. So I saw Casino Royale when it came out. That was the first film I had ever seen that was a Bond film, mainly because my parents, as I have mentioned on this show before, are very conservative and Bond is not in alignment with their values let's just say that. So I saw my first Bond at a fairly late age. I didn't know anything about Bond when I went into it and I but I remember really loving it as an action movie and we'll talk about Casino Royale later. But I watched all of the the Daniel Craig ones and then I remember going back and seeing a couple of the Sean Connery ones, but it didn't quite click. Like to me it didn't click what Bond was exactly because I just wasn't familiar with the cultural discourse around it and I wasn't really familiar with what the films were like their sensibility and so to me it was weird seeing like the Sean Connery films after the Daniel Craig ones Um, I saw a couple I did see the Timothy Dalton film The Living Daylights and I remember really liking it and that kind of inspired me to go back and rewatch the series from beginning to end, which is the impetus for this particular podcast.
0: As well as my constantly badgering you, right? We're going to stay with you on this one. You get to lead us off on another important segment, Bond Girls.
3: Okay, so it's really hard for me to talk about my favorite Bond girls because I love Bond girls. I'm just going to put that out right now. I just love them so much. There are very few that I think are not good in the role of Bond girl. And uh, I'm just going to say this. There is misogyny in, in the James Bond series. There are relationships that I think are kind of problematic, especially Pussy Galore, which we will talk about as well. But I think for the most part that Bond to me actually comes across as more of like someone who really likes women and who really likes sex than someone who's misogynistic. And I really appreciate that a lot of the women, a lot of the Bond women also really like sex. And so I I enjoy that aspect. Even in like the earlier films, you get a lot of... These Bond girls who are really almost coming more onto him than anything else. And I think that a lot of people, when they say that these films are or his relationship with women is misogynist, what they mean is that the film is male gazy, which it is. Like the the Bond films do employ the male gaze quite a bit, especially when it comes to Bond girls in bikinis. But I actually think that to assume that he's constantly exploiting women is to assume that those women don't enjoy sex, which I think is really problematic of a position to take. So that's just what I'm going to say about the Bond girls. I I just love Bond girls. I think they're great. But here are some of my favorites. I will give you the top four because it was very, very hard for me to narrow this down. So at number four, I have Diana Rigg from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. She plays Tracy Bond. I love the relationship between her and Bond. I, it breaks formula because they get married, of course, at the end of the film, shortly before her tragic death. But I really loved the rela- the development of their relationship.
0: By the way, this 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 series of episodes is definitely not spoiler free. I guess <laughs> maybe I should have said that.
3: Anyway, if you haven't figured that out by now, I feel like you're out of luck. But she, I love the... The way that their relationship develops throughout the film and the ways in which he like starts to realize that he really cares about her and the way because she's like she tries to commit suicide at the beginning of the film and he like saves her life and just i don't know it breaks formula and i just think that it's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them at number three i have barbara bach agent triple x who is from the spy who loved me She is amazing. I love her so much because she's like Bond's opposite, which we rarely get in these films. Usually the Bond girls like need to be saved or they're like a scientist or something. And I love that she is like, she is Bond. She's Soviet Bond. Like she sleeps around. She, you know, kills people. She has a license to kill on the opposite side. And so I feel like in this film, they're really presented as like the only two people who truly understand each other, which I really appreciated.
0: Even Ringo Starr married a Bond girl.
3: Yeah, and of course, she also married Ringo Starr. That that's the thing. At number two, I have Michelle Yo, because I love Michelle Yo. If you can't, if you haven't figured that out by now, Wei Lin from Tomorrow Never Dies. Michelle Yo is a Kung Fu martial arts goddess. She is just such a great actress. Her action scenes are incredible. Like you said, I I wonder if they had to tell her to tone it down so she didn't steal the show from Bond, but she is so good in this. And my favorite Bond girl at number one is Eva Green as Vesper Lind from Casino Royale. I have a huge crush Uh, on Eva Green. I have a huge crush on Eva Green, and so that is definitely part of it. But I also just really love like the sarcastic back and forth between the two of them and i just love their relationship and i like that she's the one who teaches him how to wear a tux
2: okay i I, i'm glad i can say this to someone on that screen who isn't sam tessa how does it feel to be so categorically wrong
3: (laughs) all right let's hear your (laughs) let's hear your bond girl rankings
2: i'm not gonna like own you with this one mainly because i don't like many of the Bond girls for their role as being Bond girls, I find... I don't know, it's really weird. I think Bond is a misogynist, but it's not really to do with that. I find any display of, like, affection on screen really uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable, so I don't like... I don't like that, so that kind of discounts an awful lot of the old Bond girls, you know, because that whole trope of, like, Bond is, like, in the middle of an amorous connection with the, shall we say and um, m rings in and like in the middle of that like that whole i don't know is that meant to be funny i think it's, it's
3: supposed to be funny but also it happens so many times that i turned to sam at the end of one movie and said at this point he's doing it on purpose like this is part of bond's yeah. kink is to get caught by his boss <laughs> having sex
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i agree completely
3: yeah, it's
0: not yeah. fun anymore once judy dench <laughs> takes charge i know
2: Yeah, so I feel like um I feel like my ones are just like based off of the um like the actresses and whether I enjoyed like like I enjoyed no
0: why
2: is this (laughs) I can't even do this section. I'm like no (laughs) um no, I I liked Tracy Bond and I liked the original Money Penny and I liked the Money Penny that's in the new Craig continuity. But not for their role as like being kind of a Bond girl, you know. Um, I really did not like Eva Green's um, callback to Money Penny on the train. She's like, "Yes, I'm the money, every penny of it." I didn't appreciate that. I think those. I think like the original Money Penny and Tracy Bond are my only picks from um, like the original continuity of Bond, and the rest just come from the Craig films because I li- I really like. Um, Jemma Arterton of Strawberry Fields in another reference to the Beatles. And I like uh Leia Sedu in um, Spectre and Into No Time to Die.
3: Yeah, Leia SeDu is definitely on like my short list as well.
2: Yeah, she's really she's just really great in like everything I've seen her in, including Death Stranding, which is just a bonkers game. The, the, like, just do whatever, Leia Sedu. Oh, yes. that, that was a whole mess. <laughs>
0: Clean it up. Clean clean Nigel's mess up, Elise. What do you got?
1: Um, my list is actually pretty similar to Tessa's list. Um, I have Vesper Linda's number three. Um, it's impossible to look away from Eva Green. I I just it's it's impossible. She's just so beautiful. But I just I love that she kind of did what she wanted in the film, like the scene where he, in Casino Royale, when she comes into the casino as kind of a tool to distract everyone, and it distracted Bond almost the most, was amazing. I do tend to like, although my number one doesn't fall under this category, I de- I tend to like when Bond has real feelings for the character which doesn't happen in all of them. Obviously, you mentioned Tracy Bond, who's not on my list, but would probably be number four. I just feel like the other thing with Vesper Lind is that her, whatever happens with her in Casino Royale kind of overshadows the rest of the Craig movies and how she has this lasting effect, even though she's not in those movies. Everything he does afterwards is kind of related to how he handled that situation. Um, number 2, I have also Agent Triple X Anya Amasova. I want all of her outfits, especially that one blue dress that she wears for a really long time. I also think that she and Bond had f- real feelings for each other, but it was interesting from the I don't remember. Did she know that he was the one that killed her partner at the beginning or did she find out later? I don't remember. She he,
3: she finds out later, so he she didn't know that okay. he was the one who killed her partner until, right. I want to say, like three quarters of the way through the movie, and then she promises to kill him after the mission is over. Right, But then right. we don't so see I, that. So I
1: kind of like, right, um, I like that aspect of it. Um, I kind of feel it was a similar thing that was done in Spectre also with Mr. White, which obviously we'll discuss that. So, yeah, I just really liked it. She was also a spy, as Tessa said. She can handle her own stuff. She just, I really, really liked her. I felt like she could also, like, have been on The Americans or something. (laughs) I do want to co-sign, before I get into my number one, everything that Tessa said before her list. I, I feel very similarly about Bond girls in general. That being said, while this Bond girl was not treated the best, my number one is Pussy Galore. She was just a badass. She did not care how charming James Bond was. She's canonically gay. Well, I'll get more into when we talk about um, Goldfinger. Um, I really would love a series with Pussy Galore and her flying circus gals. and Like Pussy Galore and her kittens or something like that. Like off doing spy stuff. I just think that would be a really fun series to watch. Um, I just love her. And I also when i was reading the, the book um, nobody does it better they basically said that if her name wasn't pussy galore in the novel they would not have been able to get away with having that as her name in the movie
3: yeah this is this is another bit that i wish was its own movie pussy galore and the 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 female group of pilots that she trains like that that was the other one i yeah. was thinking of as i really wish that that was its own like spin-off series or something with the octopusy girl. That's it.
0: That's it. It's pussy galore's flying circus and octopusy's regular circus. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to really quickly try to square this circle, the, the, you know, what, what Tessa said, what Nigel said. Because, you know, I've had a really hard time with this too. I think like Nigel has. And, and the reason that I've had that for so long. Is it's really a, a a triangulation of three things, and and the first one is growing for me, you know, coming of age in the '90s, which was a very specifically toxic time about gender, and and I'm not saying any other time wasn't. I'm saying about this specific toxic time, which was really kind of the the um, it was a it was a crucible of if you want to be a real man, you have to act this way with the pendulum swing that you start to see later in the 90s, you know, of of a better articulation of of what, you know, maybe feminism could be. And so growing up with all of that in your head, trying to figure out how you feel and how you should act is, I, I, I will just say it, it's deeply tra- deeply traumatic. And then, you know, the second thing is, you know, when I went to university, you know, I started learning a lot about you know second wave feminism you know about you know binaries and and gender essentialism at the same time that queer theory was really starting to become you know that 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 third wave of things that we talked about you know which is really a direction i've i've hewed into and so all that's a lot it's it's very it's been very distressing and very difficult to deal with so when you see something that's as aggressively uh you know sexual as as the the bond girl thing is I've been uncomfortable with it, and, and really the way that Tessa has explained it has been very helpful for me to, you know, to really see, you know, the good and the bad. And, and and you know, maybe a lot of these things weren't made with the best of intentions. You know, at best, they're male gazey. At worst, they might be something else. But, you know, for, for us, it can be something that that is a, a celebration that we can look at critically. All that is to say, I mean, Wylin and uh, Teresa de Vicenzo <laughs> and Anya Amasova are clearly the greatest Bond girls, with the exception of one that nobody's mentioned yet. And like girls allowed, I can't speak French. So I'm just going to say Claudine Auger. Domino. I am talking about Domino. She is my favorite Bond girl. Can I
2: make an addition
0: to my list before we move on? I mean, you can. Did we did we totally change your view on everything? No. Okay, you just wanted to add one. Okay, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just remember, <laughs> and in thoroughly uh, Nigel fashion, this will be uh, a Bond girl whose film has not arrived yet. This is um, Anna de Armas in um, No Time to Die
0: because she looks like she could kick my ass, and I'm okay with that. I'm just gonna call a party foul on that one, but okay, we we got you. It's on the record. So. If you're still with us, this is the end of part three. I promise there's only one more part to this James Bond saga within a saga. But of course, back then it was a younger, more innocent time, and we had no idea that this was actually going to become a five-part special instead of a four-part special. So, this is the end of part three, but there are two more parts to come. Come back on Wednesday for part four, come back on Thursday for part five, and if it is safe, after you listen to part five, go see No Time to Die. Or, if you're over there in the UK, maybe you've already seen it. Good for you. In the meantime, you can find Nigel on Twitter and links to her cavalcade of podcasts at Spicy Nigel. You can find Elise on Twitter at Elise underscore Tendi in her Deep Space Nine podcast on Twitter at Pod Wraiths. Tessa is on Twitter at Swa Tessa. Be sure to listen to Tessa and Nigel's brand new podcast, Nanny Og's Book Club. Find out more about that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. Finally, you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris9. Send us your thoughts about the rankings we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Check out our brand new website, monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Our theme song is Hotshot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.